Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Adam Ragusea today, who's filling in for Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're going to talk about the issue of sustainability with uh, the co-chairs of IU Sustainability Task Force. With us in the studio are Michael Hamburger, who is a geophysics professor at IU, and IU's Deputy Vice President for Administration, Paul Sullivan. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Michael, welcome back. Glad to be here. And Paul, welcome for the first time. Thank you. And Adam, welcome back. Glad to be here. All right. Now, we're going to talk about uh, a really big issue today, sustainability. It's uh, it's uh, certainly something that's been on the minds of a lot of people for the last couple of years. It's just sort of, it's really taking over. So I want to direct my first question to Michael about the task force. Um, could you just sort of give us some background about you know, when it started and what was the impetus behind it? Sure. Well, of course, this is part of uh, a, a long-term movement that's taken place here at Indiana University and at universities around the country. It's uh, gone under various uh, various terms, but really it's something that's, I think, come of age in the, in the last year or so. Um, a lot of our peer institutions have taken on big uh, efforts to examine sustainability. Ours started formally uh, a little over six months ago. Uh, a, a task force was set up uh, in response to a, a kind of grassroots effort by a group of faculty and students and staff who wrote uh, then Provost Michael McRobbie uh, with concerns about these issues. Um, he, in turn, uh, collaborated with Vice President Terry Claypax to set up this task force. It's a 16-member task force, a broad mixture of faculty, students, and staff representing both the operational side of campus and the academic side uh, to examine a broad swath of issues related to uh, long-term environmental uh, sustainability kind of a, across the board. Paul, as uh, you're on the operational side of things, so how, how did you get involved? Uh, Vice President Claypax asked me to co-chair with Michael, um, and we selected uh, about five different uh, members from the operational side to participate. Mm -hmm. So I've just been working with them, trying to coordinate it from that side. Okay. So um, let me ask uh, another. I guess uh, there are all sorts of ways we go with this because there are so many things involved with sustainability. But you know, how are you sort of putting together uh, your your game plan? I mean, what what are the major areas that you you want the university to look at? Well, you know, one of the things that's quite daunting about this is it really cuts across virtually every aspect of what the university is, from the uh, the academic mission of the campus to the all of the operations of our uh, our enormous facilities here, the residential life of uh, nearly forty thousand students who who live on and around campus, and. Uh, it's really difficult to address all of the issues involved in a, in a completely coordinated way. So what we've done, like many universities and organizations that have uh, addressed this, is to try to break it up into some more bite-sized pieces. So uh, our very initial action was to set up a series of working groups. I believe there are seven working groups. Uh, one, perhaps the most important in terms of the mission of the university, is focused on academic initiatives related to sustainability. But then there are focus groups groups related to uh, energy, environmental quality and land use, uh, resource use, recycling, transportation, the built environment and uh, food. Uh, and each of those groups in turn brought together a large group of faculty and students and staff involved in those issues. Um, we've had a group, a very exciting group of student interns working with us starting last summer and into, into this fall. Uh, and we've tried to kind of identify the status uh, of sustainability in each of those areas and make some kind of long-term targets and some focused recommendations of how to proceed. Adam, I'm going to ask one follow-up question, then I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. Here right now. I know you've got lots of questions. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to follow up, uh, Michael, academic initiatives. 
Um, what do you mean by that? Well, IU is very well known for some of its uh, already for, for many of its academic efforts in that area. Of course, we have one of the leading – the country's leading schools of public and environmental affairs. The College of Arts and Sciences has lots of activity going on in the departments of geography and anthropology and my own department, geological sciences, biology. The uh, School of Hyper has a, a very well-known outdoor uh, environmental education program. School of Education has related activities. So um, all of these things are going on in a kind of uh, separated, siloed fashion. And one of the goals of this initiative is to bring up the visibility of these um, academic efforts to um, foster more interdisciplinary, inter-school interaction uh, and um, to try to use that as a way to attract top-rate students and faculty to come to our institution. I think we're very well positioned to do it uh, and it's really more a matter of, of uh, Coordination and communication than it is starting from scratch. Do you see new new degree programs, new math or new new majors? Well, those are among our recommendations. Of course, that's a long term thing, and it's a it's a long gradual process to um, work those through the university and the and the Commission for Higher Education. Uh, but many of our peer institutions are moving quite uh, aggressively in those areas. The Arizona State, which is one of the leaders among uh, public universities, has started the nation's first school of sustainability. Um, uh, the University of Michigan has a very exciting joint program between its School of Business and its School of Natural Resources on a, an environmental business focus. And there are, I think there are many exciting new ways that we can essentially repackage some of the things that we're already doing well and uh, make them more visible and more prominent. I should mention one uh, liability here is that IU doesn't have a school of agriculture and a school of engineering and many of the efforts are focused in those areas. So we have to build on our what are our real strengths and acknowledge the things that we aren't likely to do. Okay. Our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. Gentlemen, looking over the, the, the draft report that uh, you guys released earlier in the month, uh, a number of the working groups came up with recommendations for increasing environmental – for bolstering environmental sustainability on campus that seem very quantifiable, very potentially easy to attain, you know, turning off the printers at night and uh, HVAC efficiency and uh, complex fluorescent light bulbs. But uh, looking at the transportation working groups report, there's one – there's one uh, – there's one policy suggestion that I found fascinating. It says, develop incentives to encourage faculty, staff, and students to live within walking distance of campus. That seems at once perhaps the most important recommendation, one of the most important recommendations here, but also one of the most quixotic. How do you – how would you do that? Uh, the transportation committee wrestled a lot with uh, all of this. Um, Ideally, you would want people to be able to walk or bicycle or take public transportation in. But uh, the way that the community has evolved, there are a lot of people that are commuting from long distances. Um, the, the, I'm not exactly sure how we would accomplish it. We have talked – on our working group, we did have members from the city. Uh, we had um, the director of the bus operation and a couple others uh, from the bike ped commission – and we just started talking about ideas about how we might try to plan things to, to make it a little easier for people to walk in or bike in. Could you share, share some of those? Well, uh, one of the things we talked about is the campus is very pedestrian friendly once you get into the center of campus. But getting to the campus isn't always that easy. Uh, you know, we have pretty uh, significant boundaries, especially on the east side with the bypass, which is going to be expanded, which is going to be even a bigger uh, impediment. But even on the south side, crossing 3rd and Atwater isn't all that easy to do uh, if you're a pedestrian. So we just tried to talk about different things that we could try to work through. Can I just add something to that? I think this is a perfect example of an area where the university and the city and the greater community really need to and can collaborate. And we have many common interests and there's a, uh, a great deal of synergy to be developed by getting the, the groups to talk and work together. Yeah, and that, that uh, reminds me of the fact that the city has an environmental com – uh, well, it has an environmental commission but it also has a sustainability commission now. What kind of interaction did you have with that group? Well, they asked us to participate. Um, as you can imagine, uh, there are enough people from IU that there was a, already a member on the committee. Keith Clay was on it. 
uh, when we formed our commission and our task force in March, uh, they asked us if we would participate, and, and Michael and I flipped a coin, and I got uh, – <laughs> I won. Uh, so I was on it for a while until I realized you had to be a, city, a citizen of the city, and I lived just outside the city limits. Okay. Uh, so um, – <laughs> So we, we were on it for about six months, um, and we, you know, talked about the transportation issue is one that we did talk about uh, a lot mm-hmm. in there. Okay. We have our first phone call today, and it's Valerie. Valerie, go ahead. Um, yeah, hi. I've got a question that's actually been bothering me for quite a few years. Um, when I was um, a freshman at IU, I grew up in Bloomington, um, so I was a freshman at IU back in the late 60s. And there was some kind of policy that underclassmen could not have vehicles in Monroe County. And I don't know at what point that policy was scrapped, but I really don't understand why the university doesn't have a policy like that. And, you know, it would serve a number of purposes, uh, obviously cut down on um, traffic congestion, but also I think it might raise the awareness of the uh, students early on that uh, Americans really do need to get away from this idea that everybody is entitled to have their own private vehicle and drive whenever and wherever they want. And um, is that a possibility of instituting that kind of policy again? That's one of the issues that came up in the committee. Um, We will uh, try to reopen it. Uh, I don't know how far it'll go. Well, I think Valerie brings up a, a great point, and I think that's one of the, the issues that has always been in play when it comes to sort of environmental topics, and that's this balance. I, I believe the university would – there are some in the university who I'm sure would say if we say that freshmen can't have cars on campus, that's going to put us at a competitive disadvantage with a lot of other universities where somebody can go to campus with a car. So, you know, how do you balance these competitive Well, I, I think it's also a balance between um, moving forward by providing some kinds of incentives and, and helping the, our community gradually move in a direction versus uh, making a variety of regulations. I think one of the kind of quiet revolutions that's happened over the past couple of years is the growth of public transit use among students, and that developed uh, partly through the use or largely through the use of a, a transportation fee and then open uh, access to both campus bus and community transit for students. So uh, I think there are other ways that the Transportation Committee has discussed incentivizing uh, alternative transportation use as opposed to making uh, regulations. There certainly would be a great deal of resistance to a a firm rule. There are so many students who have families uh, travel back and forth to other parts of the state and may have jobs outside of the community and so on. Uh, But it's certainly a a tough issue. Mm -hmm. It may be just because my wife and I are new scooter owners, but (laughs) it seems to me that that, uh, there has been an increase. I mean, there have always been lots of bicycles on campus, but it seems like there's been an increase in the smaller motorcycles, scooters, motorbikes that are, you know, they still obviously use gasoline, but they're use less gasoline than than cars and less space than cars. Am I just seeing that? Well, uh, it's not clear uh, whether they're replacing bicycles or replacing cars. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would that would make a big difference. Which way that goes? But I think uh, it is uh, it is an example of kind of uh, new elements of alternative transportation. They depend a lot on uh, patterns of access within the city and between the city and the campus facilities for parking. I think uh, you know the, the there are complaints about uh, where bicycles can be uh, stored and the, the security of bicycles and so on. The safety of pedestrians walking through campus. All of these things are part of the the milieu in which people make individual decisions about transportation. And the more that we can make uh, some of these alternatives more acceptable uh, and easier, uh, the more people will use them. Mm -hmm. You know, as Bob mentioned, obviously the university doesn't want to put itself in a position where they're going to put it at a competitive disadvantage in terms of recruiting students and faculty. But ultimately, aren't the objectives that are called for in your report going to demand painful concessions in the end, like um, expanding the undergraduate on-campus residency requirement or putting a hard cap on the number of parking spaces on campus? 
Well, obviously, there are big trade-offs there, and uh, there, uh, there's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. On the other hand, by proper planning uh, and implementation of some of these things, we can make some of the things, uh, some of the options more attractive than their existing alternatives. I don't know about you guys, but anybody who drives through campus uh, or, or across, say, 10th Street at the end of the day uh, is no big fan of the private automobile uh, <laughs> setup as it, as it currently exists. It also folds very deeply into how we plan the future growth of the campus. So we're talking about where buildings are going to be constructed and what transportation routes are going to be available 10 and 20 years from now, which really will affect how we, how we make some of Is this. the consensus in those conversations the greater density is called for in the future? Um, I, I'm not sure it's a consensus. Mm. Um, that is a discussion. One of the things that Michael alluded to is, and, and you, you were aware of it, uh, President McRobbie talked about doing a campus, redoing the campus master plan. So we're thinking a lot of that is going to be addressed as we go through the process. Um, I think that that will be happening over the next year. We're in the process of trying to find the architectural firm that will lead it. Um, But all the issues of density and where buildings will be placed and traffic patterns, we hope, will be addressed as part of that process. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've got Adam by about 30 years, so he probably could answer this question <laughs> a lot better about what would make the campus more competitive. Because, you know, it seems to me that there are these issues of, of uh, being competitive. There are going to be some students that are going to really um, relish the idea that the university is moving forward in these areas and want to come here more because of this kind of work. Maybe not because they can't have a car, but, but if they just know, you know the university is paying a lot of attention to that. So. Yeah. There's a tremendous uh, well of student uh, enthusiasm and engagement on these issues. Uh, one example that was kind of a shock to us is when we announced these internships at the end of uh, the very end of the spring semester. We were quite late in the game and worried that we wouldn't get any responses or just a handful. In the course of a week, at, uh, during exam week, basically of uh, spring semester, we got 200 uh, incredibly bright and active and engaged students to apply for these summer internships. Unfortunately, we were only able to support a dozen of them. But uh, I think it's a sign of a a great enthusiasm among students. I think we see it in what our peer institutions are doing and really what the leading institutions in the country are doing to try to attract the best and the brightest of of students. And I think it's to our advantage to, to make those whatever efforts we do to make them highly visible and attractive. Mm-hmm. All right, eight five five zero eight one one is our Bloomington phone number. Eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight is the number outside of the Bloomington calling area, and you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. If you just joined us, our guests today are Michael Hamburger and Paul Sullivan. They are the co-chairs of the IU Sustainability Task Force. Um, Let's get into some of the other areas and some of the efforts of where you can make a difference in terms of sustainability. Uh, you know, one that comes to mind for me is in food services. You know, what, what are the thoughts there? What are some of the ideas there. Well, it's been a very interesting one for me, and it's in a lot of places it's not on the, the highest priority list for sustainability. But when you think about it, it really is at the at the heart of people's lives, and especially students who uh, you know run between uh, classes and social events, and the meals are kind of the demarcation of their lives. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to really examine what. What, one of the core parts of our lives, how it relates to the environment beyond the university. And uh, there, of course, is a, is a local food movement that's been quite prominent across the country. Uh, and many universities are seeking ways to integrate that into the, the kind of food experience that undergraduate students get into. Um, make it into an educational experience where students are learning about the sources of their food and um, engaging with some of these complicated issues about where food comes from. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, – I mean are there discussions of packaging and – There's still styrofoam in some of those uh, dining <laughs> halls I think. Well, we're, we're trying to, to address it from all the different areas. Um, the food group basically focused on Collins and they looked at the dining service at Collins and, and – they made some recommendations about trying to uh, incorporate more local foods, and RPS has been very open to this, and they're and they're willing to go there. So, I think over the next year, they're they're thinking of using Collins as kind of a, a experimental site. Mm-hmm. 
All right, we have a couple of phone calls, so let's go to line one first. That's Gary. Yes, hello. Hi, Gary. I'm sorry to back up, but uh, I just had a comment about what the woman said earlier. I think that it's difficult, and I agree that yours is a formidable task, but I think that sometimes university, even though it may not be attractive, will have to realize that student transportation on campus needs to come to a halt. Personally, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the one to bite the bullet, but if you kept all but upperclassmen and grad students from driving. And the second thing that I'd like to uh, suggest is that you make a no-drive zone and expand the no-drive zone around the university, which would essentially destroy the incentive for students to have cars. So if you had public transportation, i.e. buses that ran 24-7, that could provide an alternate method and expanded the no-drive zone in cooperation with the city of Bloomington, I believe that you could force users or help to change their minds sooner to using that transportation and not having a drive zone, similar to what uh, London has. Hey, Gary, do you have an idea for the no-drive zone? Yes. Where, where would you put it? Where would you put it? Well, what you have to do is you have to look at the outside edges of the campus, and the reality of it would be to expand it to the outer borders. Now, I understand that some students drive vehicles, and they have housing units, but those routes could be clearly marked or delineated uh -huh. for transportation in and out. I realize that London is an exceptional um, situation where it's easier because the way the city was built to block that, but... Well, let's say Bloomington is the London of Indiana, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that's true, which seemed like it was laid out by snakes crawling in some places. But, uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> the reality of it is somebody just needs to bite the bullet and say, this is what we're going to do. It's not popular. And as you guys know, when you're on a committee, any more than five people, you're in trouble, seven, and you've gone down the drain. <laughs> somebody just needs to bite the bullet and make a decision. That's yeah. all I'm suggesting. And they have 16. So, um, <laughs> you're in trouble already. <laughs> Paul, Michael, ideas, thoughts, reaction? Uh, uh, it's an interesting concept. Um, I, you know, the difficulty is finding where where you draw the line, and then not only that, um, is it a no drive zone for faculty and staff as well? Then you're really biting a bullet. Um, I'll, I'll jump in and mention that my alma mater of Penn State has essentially implemented what Gary has suggested over the last couple of years, and that's certainly a peer institution to IU, yeah. uh, where they've identified just a couple of major thoroughfares that cut through campus that are open to auto traffic, and everything else is closed except to emergency vehicles and deliveries. Yeah, well, to that, some degree, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But to some degree, we we've done the same sure, yeah. thing. The center of campus With is closed, Street especially. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, the intent is to try to create a very pedestrian-friendly campus. If you expand that beyond, I mean, Third Street and Atwater are major thoroughfares through the city. So, um, you know, it gets it gets problematic pretty quick. I think again, you know, when we're talking about master planning for the future, when we I'm talk about Seventh and Chestnut Street, and did a lot of bare-chested pounding and territoriality and teeth gnashing uh, when Pete Chalos was the mayor, oh, yeah, but that finally terrible. came to fruition. I know it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Michael. Well, I, I, I think, again, this is, it's hard to do when we're, we've got the existing campus and we've got all of the patterns of transportation strongly developed. I think when we talk about expansion of the campus to the north, I think there could be some careful thinking about redesigning some of the, the travel routes through and around campus. I also think, again, there's been a pretty significant change. If you look at the growth of park and ride, people, uh, faculty and students who are driving to the stadium parking lot and using the public transit or their feet to get from there into campus, things are, are gradually changing. It's probably not so visible if you're driving across 10th Street at rush hour. But uh, I think, again, there are ways to enhance that and, and uh, encourage that kind of uh, commuter habit. All right. We have another call we're going to get in before the break. It's Charlie. Charlie, go ahead. Um, hi, gentlemen. I've enjoyed uh, very much the conversation, and I also would like to, uh, to uh, access the uh, idea of expanding bicycle traffic on campus as well as pedestrian. And um, obviously, the warmer the weather, the more bicycles. But the park and ride thing could also be expanded with people using bicycles on campus were during warm weather. There are more bike parking places. I would like to ask all, uh, all of you gentlemen whether you have ever ridden a bike on campus and tried to find a place to park the bike. Um, that's legal, that is. There is very much insufficient uh, bicycle parking. That's why when you go somewhere near the main library, you will see um, bikes 
attached to the chains that uh, uh, separate the sidewalk from the grass. Um, in addition to that, I have been a student, currently not. I don't have a permit on my bicycle. There is no such thing as visitor bicycle parking. So when I come to campus, I get a ticket, unlike driving a car on campus, where when there's a visitor uh, spot open, you can park your vehicle. And I would uh, like to hear your comments, and I'll take your answers offline. Uh, all, right, all right, Charlie. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Paul? Uh, that, that's the first I've heard about getting tickets um, for, for non-university bicycles. But So Paul's going to look into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, Mike. Well, I'd just like to say uh, I'm, a, I'm a longtime bicycle commuter. I'm pretty much rain or shine and uh, even in, through, a few, uh, through a few snowstorms. And I, I recognize there are definite uh, limitations and problems with our existing bicycle infrastructure. I think one thing that uh, uh, several people have complained about is that there's really not any weather-protected uh, bicycle parking and that bicycle are always the the lowest priority when it comes to finding uh, finding spaces on campus. I think that's something that we could address in a in a pretty cost effective manner. Some of our peer institutions do have much more substantial uh, opportunities for a kind of all weather biking and and uh, and uh, parking of the bikes. Um, I think it's all part of developing a, an integrated transportation plan that brings in both the, the city and the campus into a, a forward-looking plan for the future that will make it more comfortable for people like Charlie to, to bike into campus. All right. We're talking to the co-chairs of the IU Sustainability Task Force today. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332 2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.com. Dot info. Holiday entertainment comes early on the IU campus with the IU Ballet Theater presenting The Nutcracker with performances tonight, Saturday afternoon and evening, and Sunday afternoon. And then next Wednesday, it's the Chimes of Christmas in the IU Auditorium at the family-friendly hour of 7.30. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Adam Ragusea from WFIU, who's filling in for Mary Catherine Carmichael today. And we have two guests. Michael Hamburger is a geophysics professor at Indiana University, and Paul Sullivan is deputy vice president for administration at IU. They are the co-chairs of the sustainability IU Sustainability Task Force. Before we get into the second half of the program, I want to mention that next week's guest will be Faisal Istrabadi. He is uh, on the faculty at IU now, and he is the former ambassador to the United Nations from Iraq. His sister, Zainab, has been here on the program before. She's also on the, uh, the IU faculty. So that will be a good show next week. Absolutely. But we've got a good show this week too. And we have some emails. So let's go to Adam and the emails. Sure, yeah. Here's, uh, here's a question. It says, IU is a prodigious consumer of computers and an advocate of computer consumption by students, staff, and faculty. But as with radioactive waste, there isn't yet any safe way to dispose of old computers and computer parts. Most end up in dumps leaking toxic metals into the environment, especially in third world countries whose populations aren't powerful enough to fight this toxic waste imperialism. Is there any ethical path for IU to follow with respect to computer consumption short of no longer using computers? Paul, that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. Um, I don't think that we're going to be um, doing away with computers. Uh, however, one of the outcomes of this task force is uh, we are looking at how we're handling the recycling of computers. And we just had a discussion Wednesday night about uh, the way that they're currently being disposed of, and we're going to take a hard look at that to figure 
to find a better way to get the, the toxic materials recycled correctly. Are, are there, uh, as you've said, other universities are embracing these issues too. Has, are you familiar with any that have sort of solved this problem or have a, uh, best practices to follow? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's happening at both ends. The computer industries also are becoming more green. So you're, you're getting less uh, toxic chemicals in, in the computers. We've already made the transition from the old CRT monitors to the LCDs, which are a little bit better environmentally. Um, it's really just a question of how, how you can uh, responsibly dispose of the, the old equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's another. It's a little bit more limited in its scope. It says, I hope the people who switch to scooters and the like will have the mercy to drive only with those quiet mufflers. My husband and I were in Athens where scooters, et cetera, are popular and the noise was very annoying. I guess that's directed at you, Bob. Ours is, <laughs> ours is very quiet. It's amazingly quiet. All right. Uh, again, our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. How's the university going to reduce its energy consumption? Well, that's a giant, uh, the million-dollar question. It's a, a, a giant challenge for an institution as large and as uh, as uh, energy dependent as ours. And of course, uh, energy is used in a variety of forms for for heating the buildings in the winter, for cooling the buildings in the in the summer, for providing electricity for these computers, for for uh, lighting in the in the dorms, for hot showers for the students, and you know we're basically running a city here, and it's not a, a trivial matter to to uh, turn down the knob and say we're going to reduce energy by twenty percent. Uh, one thing I've learned that was kind of a shock in this uh, in the course of working on this task force is how little information we have about our energy use. Uh, and uh, one of the, the interns who worked with us this summer did an extensive study on utility metering uh, on the campus. And it's quite surprising uh, how few of the buildings on campus even have formal energy metering so, the, so that we know how much electricity or hot water or, or steam or, or uh, cool water are being used by those buildings. And even those that have utility meters, how few of those are being read. Uh, so one of the goals of an effort like the sustainability uh, effort is to start to uh, monitor this kind of information, develop uh, some benchmarks by which we can keep track of how much we're using and find ways to uh, f- to reduce energy use. Of course, there's a lot of practical things changing to compact, compact fluorescent light bulbs, lowering the temperature a little bit in the winter and raising the temperature a little bit in the summer. A lot of it relates to how the buildings are built and renovated, uh, finding ways to more effectively um, uh, weatherproof buildings and so on. Of course, it's much easier to do when you're designing new buildings. So, for example, the new multidisciplinary science building, MSB2, is uh, ideally going to be built to a lead silver, the, the certification organization uh, level of, of uh, energy conservation. I think it's going to be a goal of this task force and, and hopefully a goal of the university into the uh, future to ensure that all new buildings and all renovations on this campus are done in such a way to, to uh, decrease the energy use. The one thing that, that I want to add to that is um, we have been doing a lot to control energy use on campus. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but we do lower thermostats in the winter and raise them in the summer. We have a computer-controlled system to, to regulate that on all the buildings on campus. We've also done a number of energy efficiency projects, uh, put in low-flow low show, low shower heads in the dorms and those kind of things, uh, compact fluorescence. So we have been doing a lot of that. What we're really looking for is incremental progress, continuing to, to just keep chipping away at it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a couple of phone calls. We have Natalie next. Natalie? Hello. Um I find it um, a, a bit of a contradiction when you say we're encouraging people to walk to campus at the same time the university is putting up this monster garage at Atwater and, and Fest. Um, and then in line with the previous caller about energy, um, there are several buildings on campus that have steam lines under the sidewalk, which is fine for melting the snow in the, summer, in the winter, but why are they operating in the summer? 
All right. Who wants to handle that? Uh, well, the uh, um, the steam lines. I'm not sure I can. Uh, well, the, the steam lines. Uh, I, I'm assuming the ones you're referring to are the ones on Jordan are uh, a problem, and we haven't had we haven't found the funds yet to get those repaired. Uh, we are trying to repair the steam lines wherever we can. Um, the steam does run during the summer to some of the buildings because it is required to, to keep some of the internal systems going. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, there is some. It's a much lower load, but there is some running. Let, let me say a word about the parking garage. And, of course, any time there's a big decision made, it's uh, always embroiled in some, some controversy and people who feel strongly one way or the other. I should say uh, in our defense that the decision and planning was done before the sustainability task force uh, existed. Um, but the reality is in every decision, it's a balance between a variety of uh, competing pressures on the university to provide appropriate access for all of its employees and, and students and also to uh, bring into consideration a lot of these uh, long-term environmental and, and other um, uh, broad issues. Uh, and uh, I guess my goal in this is to see that at least the issues of sustainability are brought to the table every time there's a discussion on a new facility decision. It doesn't mean that every decision is going to be made in the way that uh, each of us might want, but it, uh, it does mean that at least it's going to be part of the discussion and, uh, and integrated into decision-making at all levels. That's really the goal of creating an Office of Sustainability. It's not so much that there's going to be a, a sustainability czar who's going to say, no, you can't build that parking garage or uh, you, know, you have to put a, a parking ban here. It means that that person or that group can be brought into the discussions when new facilities planning is taking place. All right, Natalie, thanks a lot for the call. Okay, thank you. All right, and Stan is next. Stan? Hi. Um, in, in areas, for example, of recycling glass and plastic, many states put a uh, surcharge on the container so that it will be returned. And, of course, this aids in recycling in any case. <clears throat> I don't see why, in general, this shouldn't be taken up at the state level. It's a political matter in order to require manufacturers either to accept used equipment back in the case of uh, uh, computer, et cetera, um, or to reduce packaging to some degree. That, that may be a federal requirement, but I think the universe of, of participation has to be on a larger scale, at, at least multi-state, if not it's not within the state and not national. That's you bring up an interesting say. question, which is to say, ultimately, by spearheading this kind of initiative within the university, are you trying to set an example for the broader society? Will the universities be the laboratories for sustainable living that then uh, provide an influence for the rest of the country for sweeping policy changes nationwide? Are you just trying to mind your own backyard? I'd say that's a that's a perfect uh, statement of what we're what we're trying to do in in both cases. I think. What we do as a university goes beyond just what our physical plant does inside the, the boundaries of the university. We're educating the leaders and the citizens of the next generation and the habits that they develop here. Really, for, for many undergraduate students, it's the first time living away from home in a, in a somewhat different environment. It's a chance to at least get people to be thoughtful about many of these parts of their lives that they've just taken for granted uh, growing up and a chance to at least be thoughtful about the about the decisions they're making in many areas, whether it comes to whether you're talking about uh, civil rights or social justice or uh, educational issues, the universities are, are the, the leading institutions of the society, and, and we do set an example for how other big institutions behave. I, I absolutely agree, and I, and I think uh, <clears throat> education has to precede uh, changes in, in regulation and law. Uh, because you have to bring the people along with you, uh, just as with um, uh, student nutrition. Uh, and recent studies have found that uh, it, it's very important to, to, to change the nature of the way children are eating for the long-term benefit. And, and I think you're right that an educational institution can, can help bring the populace around to um, necessary political action, which is not a bad word. But and thank you. I want to follow up to what Stan asked also, and, 
Are you going to create a uh, an agenda to push to the legislature or any of those things? Because that, as you know, Stan said, something like a bottle bill is way beyond what the task force can do here. But you know, would you do you plan to to send a message to you know our legislators about here's what we where we stand? I think up to now we've been dancing around that issue. Of course, a lot of us have our own opinions about these things. I think we've tried to kind of demarcate a boundary between uh, actions and uh, and education that are really within our purview versus advocacy, which is kind of outside. Of course, there are things that are kind of on the on the boundary. Uh, for example, the institution is uh, one of the major consumers of uh, energy from Duke Energy. For example, it's a chance for the university to have some very forthright conversations with the energy providers about, for example, availability of renewable energy resources. But I think we, as a, at least as a task force, are trying not to take a stand on um, external political issues and leave that to the individual decisions of participants. Okay. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Here's another email, and this is one that we probably should have touched on earlier. The term sustainability is heard frequently. However, I have not heard a good definition or description on the radio or read one in the newspaper. Please have your guests define the meaning of sustainability. Excellent question. Uh Uh, Well, you know, sustainability is one of those words. It's used quite widely in a wide variety of contexts, and often people uh, invest in it uh, meanings of their own, and sometimes that's a good thing. It has uh, still, for most people, a a pretty positive ring to it. I think the simplest uh, definition of sustainability is the idea of meeting the, the needs of the present without compromising the needs of future generations. And that refers to basically stewardship of the uh, the natural resources on which we depend on limiting the, env- the, the degradation of the environment on which uh, all life depends. Um, for many, it includes somewhat broader issues, including issues of social equity and, uh, and environmental justice and, and kind of broader issues uh, of societal tensions that may threaten long-term sustainability. For me as a geologist, I, ca- I, take a, I take a kind of geological view. It's a way of thinking of our role on the world um, as part of a much larger spatial scale, the scale of the world, and a much longer time scale, uh, and thinking about the way the world is going to look to our children and grandchildren. It, that's such a great question, though. I, I think I've said, I said to Dave Rollo when he was on here talking about the first sustainability issue uh, with the city when, when he was first bringing that up, that, that sustainability is a tough word for people to get their arms wrapped around. It means different things to different people. To some, it means, you know, growing all your own food, you know, and having it, having all the food be locally grown. And, and then, you know, that brings up issues of, well, if we're growing all of our own food and the food supply in Martinsville goes down, then what happens, you know? Uh, so I, I don't know. It, it is a, it's a, but it was a great question from our listener. I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Michael, about how, uh, you know, we don't have a school of agriculture or engineering, but we know that Purdue does. So what kind of a partnership might be um, developed between those two universities? Well, as long as it's not during basketball season, I suppose we can talk about it. Um, to, to be honest, not much in that arena has been explored yet. Purdue, like most of our peer institutions, is, uh, is um, uh, developing its own activities in that uh, realm. They've got a um, – I've forgotten what the acronym, but it's a, a, a Center on Environmental Sustainability, Pisces, I think it's called. Uh, and they, of course, have some very interesting opportunities to engage in some of the big discussions on biofuels and, and uh, new engineering methods that might help with conservation and so on. Um, in both the academic realm and the operational realm, there are big collaborative opportunities, of course, among our peer institutions in the Big Ten. There are uh, several national associations that are bringing people together to address these issues collectively. So I think it's, there's a lot of potential for the future. Um, maybe some, some healthy competition combined with some collaboration could develop some, mm-hmm. some big things. Well, sure. You know, IU doesn't have uh, engineering or agriculture, but it does have a school of public and environmental affairs. Right. right. Yeah. 
So somehow that, that synergy, to use that overused word, between the, the two seems Absolutely. like a good idea. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Paul, I wanted to go back to you about, about the benchmarking and the measurements since you're on the operations side of things. Um, what's, the, what's the task force's um, game plan, I guess, for trying to determine you know, how well you're doing? Well, the, if you look at the uh, the initial report, we've actually laid out some beginning benchmarks, and so uh, the idea is to to put those in place and just monitor them over the over the years. Um, as I said before, we're really looking for pro- incremental progress. We're really not looking that things are going to change drastically in a, in a year or two. But if we can continue to make progress on a lot of these issues, energy is a big one. Uh, we did have a student and a faculty member help us uh, calculate out our carbon footprint, which is one of those nice big uh, numbers that you can look at, um, and just monitor it to, to make sure we're going in the right direction. So have you, you've calculated the carbon footprint for the campus? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a preliminary, you know, <laughs> our best guess at this point. Yeah. But they, they dug up a lot of information about the, the total utility use, uh, transportation use, um, just tried to get a handle on it. How, how many students are on the uh, task force? Uh, three students are on the task force plus the interns, uh, and they've been pretty active for the last four months. Yeah, and the intern, that may be part of the answer to my question, but the, the question is, you know, how are you uh, engaging students in this work, and what's the response been? To me, it's one of the most exciting parts of this. First of all, we've just had a really great group of students working with us. It's it's uh, totally exciting. Uh, I, one of the things that uh, I think is really exciting about this whole thing is it turns the the whole university operation into a, a living laboratory, as, as you described before. Um, I was with the interns uh, when they did a tour of the chilled water plant. I don't know how many uh, thousands and thousands of students come through here and never have any idea where the air conditioning in their building comes from and what the, the technical, really intriguing technical um, processes and challenges are that go into that. Uh, I think for the people on the operational side, too, it's been quite rewarding to have students engaged in what they're doing and, and working with them. Um, so the, the kind of uh, bounds are, are limitless. Uh, in each of the areas that we've explored, we've tried to identify um, opportunities for service learning, for classes to get engaged with, with these issues, for co-curricular activities, for student groups and volunteer groups to to engage. And uh, we're trying to find all the ways we can to enhance those opportunities. Okay. Gentlemen, I know that when you came out with the draft report earlier in the month, uh, the news stories that were that were written by some of the people in this room uh, about uh, about that tended to focus on uh, one of the recommendations that was right at the top, and that was for the universities to sign on to some kind of institutional commitment, like the American College and University President's climate commitment. Have you gotten any uh, any feedback from the president's office on that? We've talked to the president about it. He's taking it uh, under advisement at this point. Um, I think he he would like to get a little bit more information about uh, exactly what it means. Uh, It has been signed by a number of universities. Uh, None of our Big Ten colleagues have signed it yet. So it's, it's an opportunity, and I think he's looking at it seriously. All right. We've uh, just had a rush, of, a flurry of emails, and we also have a phone caller. So we're going to try to keep these quick. We only have about four minutes to go. Joseph, you're up. Yeah, quick uh, observation and a question. One is I think the university is doing a great job on the grounds. When they put up a parking garage, it doesn't even look like a parking garage. It looks like a museum. They put trees up. They use limestone. So, And the grounds is beautiful to walk on. If you compare it to the city, they have a concrete abutment with dead flowers. IU has flowers springing all year round. So great job on the, I think, control of University of Ground. But the question is, with all this outsourcing, do you feel the university is losing its sense of community and turning into a fast food nation kind of campus with everything outsourced to the regular world? There's this seems to be a loss of sense of community of a uh, just a, well, that's my comment. Okay. Thanks. All right, Joseph. Anybody want to comment on that, Paul? No. Well, I mean, we, we are looking at uh, different functions, to, whether they should be outsourced. In reality, we outsource a lot of things. Um, it's just a question of where you draw the line. 
Mm-hmm. I'd just say that, you know, it's, of course, a, a nasty word these days. But like all of these issues, there are very interesting trade-offs. Some of these uh, outsourcing organizations may offer us opportunities that we might not have internally. And uh, we just have to examine each of these decisions with the broad view in mind. And there may be some advantages to us. All right. We have about uh, two and a half minutes to go and at least three. Yeah. Well, here's, here's a brief emailed comment that I'd like to get in. It says, if half of what I've read about peak oil is true, the coming collapse of the U.S. economy will take care of many of your problems, i.e. too many cars and students. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> so moving on from that, uh, I'm wondering how educating staff of these issues is being incorporated into the planning. I assume that means professional and support staff of the university. The, uh, there is a significant interest for, on the professional staff uh, on all these issues in, in the areas that I work in. And uh, we're just now beginning to investigate, for instance, we had a discussion yesterday about uh, changing some of our cleaning policies to bring in green cleaning. So uh, we're, we're working through it. People are really interested in it. All right. Any more? Uh, let's see. We, we have, have two minutes to go. Got two minutes. Okay, here we go. Carbon dioxide is one of the leading causes of global warming and should be a priority for the IU sustainability planning. Coal-fired plants have been shown to be one of the leading causes of rising CO2 levels, yet it seems that IU is mandated by the state to use lower-quality Indiana coal for its boilers. What is the university going to do long-term about coal-fired plants? It seems that IU is adding new boilers and furnaces rather than finding an alternative. What is the status of the plant, and will nuclear energy ever be an option for IU? I'm not going to answer the last one. Uh, (laughs) We are currently upgrading the plant, but the the upgrade is putting in a natural gas uh, packaged boiler. Um, What we're doing is creating an environment where we can switch to either natural gas or coal. Uh, The economics of the situation, again, it's one of those trade-offs, are significant. Uh, Gas is about five times more expensive than coal. Um, So we're going to be measuring that as we go along. Okay. Uh, in the last minute, tell me how our listeners, tell our listeners how they can reach you guys and the Sustainability Task Force and if there are volunteer opportunities for them to help you out. Well, I'm uh, very important to point people to our all new and still uh, developing uh, sustainability website. That's the regular Indiana um, uh, website, www.indiana.edu slash Tilda, the little squiggle, sustain. Uh, and uh, they'll get, they can get access to the, the draft report and there's a suggestion box for people to make uh, constructive comments. Uh, there's also an email address, sustain at indiana.edu, and we welcome uh, contributions and interest uh, uh, among possible volunteers. Okay. I want to thank our guests today, Michael Hamburger and Paul Sullivan, for uh, Adam Bergusia, who sat in for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.